Welcome everyone to this live LSE event. My name is Minou Shafiq and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And it gives me great pleasure today to welcome Professor Francisco Ferrara to the LSE. He is the Amartya Sen Professor of Inequality Studies and the director of the International Inequalities Institute at LSE. He's also affiliated with the Department of Social Policy and the Latin American and Caribbean Center at the school. Francisco, who is I think affectionately known by all as Chico, is an economist working on measurement, causes and consequences of inequality and poverty with an emphasis on developing countries in general and Latin America in particular. And his most recent work is very focused on the definition and measurement of inequality of opportunity. He's widely published and as an academic, has, has been uh, awarded many prizes and associated with a number of leading research centers uh, and uh, leading professional journals. Prior to returning to the LSE, where he did his PhD, uh, Chico had a long career at the World Bank, mainly in the research department. In this lecture, he's going to focus on how some economists have come to define, model, and measure inequality of opportunity and why we should think of that as the active ingredient of inequality, both in terms of, in, of justice and efficiency. So he'll talk to us about inequality, its links to intergenerational mobility, and also attempt to quantify and compare inequality of opportunities across countries and over time. Today's event is sponsored by the International Inequalities Institute at LSE, which brings together experts from around the world and fantastic students to do cutting edge research on focusing on the understanding of why inequalities exist around the world. And this event forms part of the LSE's own efforts to shape the post COVID world and is part of a series of lectures on that theme. Please join us for others. Now the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE COVID-19 for those of you who use Twitter and this evening this evening's event will be recorded and podcast afterwards. And as usual, after the lectures, we'll be taking questions for Chico. There's a Q&A function, so please put your questions there and uh, we will try and get to as many of them as we can. So with that, let me now turn to Professor Francisco Ferrara to deliver his lecture entitled The Active Ingredient of Inequality. Over to you, Chico. Thank you very much, Minush. Thank you for that very kind introduction. And uh, thanks, uh, thanks also to everyone for joining today. Yes, as Minush said, I'll be talking about uh, inequality of opportunity today, uh, what it is, uh, some of the mechanisms to, through which it is produced and reproduced, some of its consequences, but most of all, I'll spend some time on the measurement of inequality of opportunity. And in doing so, I will, of course, be drawing on some of my own work with many co-authors in the past. Uh, but also, I'll be drawing on lots of other people's work uh, that contribute to the, to the topic and to this evolving research agenda. So, uh, you know, those, those people are hopefully uh, uh, fully acknowledged in, in the slides that I'll be using. Uh, outline of the talk, first couple of slides of motivation. Why should we bother? Why is it important to measure inequality of opportunity? Then I'll offer you a definition of equality of opportunity that economists have come to use and many, many illustrations of inequality of opportunity, which is what we in fact observe around the world. Then I'll turn to section three, which is the gist, you know, the, 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 the core of the talk, if you like, on the, the measurement of inequality of opportunity uh, and the evolution of that literature from some early work, uh, including some of my own, and a number of newer and exciting things uh, that mostly other people have been doing recently, building on that. Before I turn to some extensions uh, linking, as Minouche said, to intergenerational mobility, economic growth, uh, et cetera, and, and, then I'll, and then I'll conclude. So, uh, so by way of motivation, let me offer three arguments as to, as to why uh, this concept of inequality of opportunity is important. The first argument is political salience. It, it, is, a, it is a concept that resonates very widely across the political spectrum. I have here two 
quotes from the U.S. 75 years apart. You've got there Franklin D. Roosevelt's second inaugural address in 1937. It says, We know that equality of individual ability has never existed and never will, but we do insist that equality of opportunity still must be sought. 75 years later, Alan Kruger, a famous economist who was then, at the time, the, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama, said, the rise in inequality in the United States over the last three decades has reached the point that inequality in incomes is causing an unhealthy division in opportunities and is a threat to our economic growth. And these are two American examples, but around the world, politicians and policymakers have often noted that even people who are not necessarily egalitarian in the space of incomes or other outcomes tend to respond to the idea that equality of opportunity is a defining feature of fairness. And the second uh, Motivation is that they're not alone in that. The, the people who've probably thought the hardest and the longest about social justice, about uh, what constitutes a fair society, and those are moral and political philosophers like Rawls and Dworkin and Arnson and Cohen. Uh, the, these guys, although they have often uh, used different words, uh, they, they tended to place equality of opportunity very much at the core of what they were doing. In Rawls's the theory of justice, of course, of the two principles of justice that he has, one uh, contains a sub-principle, which is the equal opportunity principle, right? The second principle. Um, Amartya Sen's famous Tanner lectures uh, 40 years ago asked equality of what? And the answer, uh, you know, what he was asking here was, right, we want to pursue equality, but is it equality of, of income? We want a society where all incomes are equal, or all wealth is equal. What, what are we looking for? And his own answer is, of course, equality of capabilities, which are sets, opportunity sets from which people can choose you know, their lives, their functionings, and so on. And Dworkin wrote about equality of resources and Arnson about equality for opportunity and so on. What they all have in common is that the equalizandum, the thing that you should be thinking to, should be aiming to equalize to make a fair society, were opportunity sets, sets, choice sets, from which people could then make choices that might lead to some differences, which might be okay. People have different income leisure trade-offs. That may be fine if they have different incomes, provided they had the same choices to start with, the same chances. And the third <clears throat> the third um, uh, uh, motivation is that this idea that people want to equal, that people think of equalizing choice sets as as key to justice, also has backing from you know empirical evidence and, and lab experiments on on preferences. We now know, known for a while now, that individuals do value fairness and equity in the specific sense that people are prepared to give up private monetary gains to achieve what they perceive as a just allocation. And you may know the work by Ernst Fair and many other people on dictator games and ultimatum games, where people will actually leave money on the table. They'll, they'll reject offers that they perceive as unfair. And this is real money that they take home. So the homo economicus that cares only about him or herself, the, the, the purely self-regarding preferences, is, you know, often uh, occasionally a useful construct, but is not a real, uh, is not what human beings really are like. And I guess everybody knew that except economists, but we've found out too. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, so people do care about fairness, but more recent evidence suggests that actually they don't just care about equality. What? is deemed fair, what is deemed to be a just allocation, depends on how that uh, allocation is arrived at, with people often uh, viewing some reward to effort as fair. You know, some work here that I cite, often by Alexander Kapelin and co-authors, the, the Bergen School, if you like. Uh, they have lots of work. This one here is, uh, uses uh, brain scans and neuroeconomic science, they call it, uh, To, to look at how people tend to accept outcome differences that are proportional to measured uh, effort as fair. Um, so 
across politicians and philosophers and just regular human beings as their uh, preferences are revealed to us through experiments, it seems to be that, that, that people value this idea of choices. Choice sets should be equal. People should be given fair chances, equal starting chances. But there may be some differences that arise from choices or effort or responsibility, which may be acceptable. So how have economists built on, on these ideas? Well, drawing here on work by people like John Romer, Dirk van der Gaar, Mark Zerbe, and others, um, I'm summarizing uh, some of the theory by saying that people tend to think, uh, economists tend to think of equality of opportunity as a situation that satisfies two principles. The principle of compensation says that outcome differences that are due to factors beyond an individual's responsibility, beyond an individual's control, are unfair and should be compensated. These are factors beyond your control are called circumstances. And you can think of them as race, gender, ethnicity, but also your family background, the place where you were born, um, how you were taught, um, what your parents, uh, how your parents were with you when you uh, started. You know, the, basically the circumstances, the choices, the, 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 the factors that shaped your choice set at the beginning. The second principle is the principle of reward, and it says other outcome differences that reflect differences in individual responsibility and choices or effort, once you control for circumstances, these are ethically legitimate and may be acceptable and may be preserved. Right? Now, if you take these two principles, what you'll end up with, or one formal statement of equality of opportunity you'll end up with, is that if you have some variable X that we're interested in, it could be income, could be wealth, could be educational achievement, could be health status. It would be distributed independently of circumstances, i.e. it would have the same distribution amongst blacks and whites, amongst people with educated parents and uneducated parents, amongst men and women, and it's sub subgroups thereof. Right? And this will become a little clearer as I, as I go on. But what you note here is that it's not saying X will be equally distributed. It says X will be distributed in some way so that circumstances don't matter. Two remarks about this before I, I move to some illustrations. First, something that a philosopher, Gerald Cohen, claimed was this approach performs for egalitarianism a considerable service of incorporating within it the most powerful idea in the arsenal of the anti-egalitarian right, the idea of choice and responsibility. So it brings choice and responsibility into uh, the study of, of, of inequality and, and, uh, and, and the egalitarian project. But it comes with a cost. It considerably expands the scope for normative judgment in the measurement of inequality. And people who are familiar with the measurement of inequality will remember Tony Atkinson uh, at that time here at LSE when he wrote uh, you know, that, that any measure of inequality in inherently involves some judgments about social welfare. And what he was talking about was the sensitivity of inequality indices to different parts of the distribution. But now, in addition to that, we have normative judgments, we have scope of normative judgments on what factors should be considered circumstances. So, you know, this whole idea of inequality being independent of circumstances will gain body, will gain flesh only once we define what are circumstances and what are not circumstances. And so then there is scope for normative judgment and moral debate about so if that by way of a, of a proposed definition of equality of opportunity, let me now give you illustrations of inequality of opportunity, which is what we in fact observe uh, all around the world. And I, I'm going to do this in a, in a sort of life cycle manner here by beginning with brain scans for two three-year-olds. Uh, this is from a work by Bruce Perry, uh, a, a, neuro, a neuros, neurologist, um, these are two kids actually in the US, uh, one a normal child exposed to the normal kinds of stimulation and one a three-year-old with acute developmental gaps. Uh, in fact, 
it's most likely, you know, there's confidentiality issues in the article, but most likely the child of a, a substance abuse, uh, abusing uh, parent. Um, and so uh, what you see is just from looking at the picture of these two brains, uh, that these kids, obviously through no fault of their own, because they're three years old, um, will have different abilities to learn, uh, different cognitive abilities, uh, and will face very different opportunities in life from the beginning. Uh, obviously, you know, this is a sort of prima facie evidence of inequality of opportunity. And that continues. Those two are, are age three. Here I have uh, uh, some graphs from very nice paper by Christina Paxson and Norbert Shadi, where they looked at a sample in Ecuador. Uh, it's not a representative sample. It's actually a sample of relatively poor people in a, in a, in a poor community in Ecuador. And the lines show um, an index of cognitive development. It's, in fact, a, an index of, uh, of vocabulary recognition. You know, how many words do these kids recognize as they get older from 36 months to almost six to 72 months or so. Uh, and the index is normed at 100. So, you know, a healthy child in a reference population would be always at 100. So the number of words would grow, but they would be at, at 100. And, and here they divide the sample into the, the, the wealthiest quartile of the sample and the poorest quartile. And they do another cut, which is by the education of the mother. These are more educated mothers. And these are mothers with much less education, zero to five years. And what you see is that the gap in vocabulary recognition grows very markedly um, as these children are growing. And this is before they are six. This is before they begin primary school. And, you know, we tend to think of, of the human capital production process, or we used to think of the human capital production process as beginning at school. And, of course, now, We've known for a while now this is not the case. And you can see that these gaps are opening up before kids get to school. And, uh, <coughs> and, and when they do get to school, uh, it just continues. The effect of, of parental background just continues to have, uh, to have an effect on their learning. Um, these bars here represent the impact of one standard deviation of an index of family background. So it's, it's, this comes from the PISA uh, test scores from the OECD, the Program of International Student Assessment that has these comparable tests, right? People are probably familiar with them. They have from their data an index that combines economic, social, and cultural status of the household. And one standard deviation uh, change of that within a country will have this impact on test scores. Test scores are normed to have a mean of 500 in the OECD, so you can see that one standard deviation in some of these countries over here can have a very large impact indeed, about a tenth of the mean uh, on, on, uh, on test scores, right? This happens because of the family's direct impact at home, you know, the books they read, the conversations they have, the resources available at home, but also because of school sorting, because uh, around the world, uh, richer families end up putting their uh, kids in schools with better teachers and with peers that come from similar families. So there are peer effects and there may well be neighborhood effects in addition to those peer and teacher effects. And so, you know, that, that story of family background, of circumstances, things that people are not responsible for affecting their, their, their cognitive skills and their development continues. And of course, this gets uh, reproduced through life and manifests itself in the labor market. And so you end up, unsurprisingly, with distributions of income or consumption amongst adults, which are also quite different, uh, depending on things uh, that people are not, should not be held responsible for at all. In this graph, we have uh, uh, five Latin American countries, and we have the distribution of per capita household consumption, okay, but instead of having the distribution of per capita household consumption for Colombia and Ecuador and Guatemala here, I've drawn, drawn three of them. Uh, one for kids whose mothers, for adults, these are adults, these are household heads, whose mothers had no education or had primary complete, uh, sorry, primary incomplete is the red, or had primary complete 
which is the green. And as you know, a cumulative distribution function, the further to the right it is, the better it is, right? The, the more well-being you have. Um, and what this shows is that, although I'm just taking a cut here of, of, um, of mother's education, this is not a causal uh, analysis, just a cut to, to, this, to, to separate the sample into those with better opportunities in their backgrounds because of their families and others. And clearly, they're very, very different distributions. And here, notice, I haven't even talked about inheritance or capital transmission. This is really primarily about things happening through the labor market. And of course, it gets compounded if you were in countries and distributions where you had data about inheritance uh, and, and transfer of, of physical wealth between the parents and, and children. Now, you know, people looked at these kinds of pictures and they thought, well, can we compare inequality in Ecuador and Guatemala? Can I, can I actually rank which of these is more unequal in terms of opportunity? And, and that's how this literature began about attempting to measure inequality of opportunity. And so now, with your uh, permission, I will introduce a very, very, very simple model. In fact, calling it a model is probably a misnomer, a very basic conceptual framework uh, that, that is canonical in the sense that various different approaches that people use, um, all of them kind of use this or can be represented in these terms. And here the key idea is to have to think of people as consisting of three things that matter. Uh, an outcome variable of interest, think of it as income, their circumstances, and an index of responsibility or effort. And think of circumstances and effort as being the only things that determine income. Uh, and of course, we'll, when we come to the empirics, I'll talk about what it means that there may be other things. But for understanding the theory, just think of your outcome in life as depending on your circumstances, which may include luck, uh, and, uh, and the choices you make on the basis of that set. Now, let's call people who have the same circumstances. So suppose there were just two circumstances, race and gender, okay? So there were uh, black men, black women, white men, white women. That was all there was. Uh, a type would be black men or white women. Uh, a type is a set of people that have the same circumstances. And a trench is a set of individuals that spend the same effort level. Without loss of generality, let me just think there can be lots of types and lots of trenches. And then I can represent society by a, by a matrix like this. This is a matrix in which each row corresponds to a type. I've got here a whole bunch of people who exert low effort and belong to this type C2. You know, they could be, suppose this was Brazil. This could be uh, uh, Afro-Brazilians born in the Northeast to uneducated mothers but slightly more educated fathers whose fathers work in agriculture and whose mothers are homemakers or some such. And there could be hundreds of these. Okay. And here I have a distribution of, 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 of incomes in that type, which is uh, always increasing in effort. Okay? This is the basal space of the equality of opportunity theory. And you should, Compare it in your mind to a simple vector of the axis, which is what welfareism or utilitarianism are based on. Those, if you just look at incomes or consumption and you try to say something about inequality or welfare, you're just using the vector. Here, this requires much more information because we need to know about people's circumstances. And so we have a matrix instead of a, of a vector. So how do we use this to measure inequality of opportunity? Well, two very simple steps. Uh, well, the first is not so simple, and uh, we'll come back to it. The first one is you take that matrix, Xij, and you somehow extract from it all the uh, fair inequality, the inequality that satisfies the principle of reward, the inequality that's somehow a reward to effort or good choices. You live only the bad inequality, the bad cholesterol, the unfair inequality. Then when you have that matrix, X tilde, which is a counterfactual matrix, you just apply an inequality index to that matrix. So this is clearly very simple. It's the first step where the crux of the problem is, right? How do you eliminate all the, all the unfair, uh, sorry, all the fair inequality and leave only the unfair uh, inequality? And, and this has been done in many different ways. And there is 
you know, a long and rather elaborate literature that I will not have time, unfortunately, to, to delve into here. I'm just going to present you one approach, probably the simplest, but it's also the one that has been most often used empirically. Um, and that is to say, well, one way to eliminate all the fair inequality and to keep the unfair inequality is to give everyone their type mean. So now I've moved to three, okay, instead of, but it's the same matrix I had before, but this is now, you know, my counterfactual matrix, and I've replaced the X11, X12, X13 with the mean of type one, and the mean of type two, and the mean of type three. How does that do the trick? Well, remember that in the theory, this, these differences within a type are meant to be due to effort only, and those are the differences that the reward principle says could be okay. So I've eliminated that fair inequality and I left the inequality between types, which is the unfair inequality. And by the way, we can make this much more sophisticated and we can have some inequality aversion within here, but I'm just giving you the basics. And in the basics, this is what you do. You've got this between types approach and then you apply your inequality measure to this animal rather than to that one, okay? Uh, and so this is what you get, you get some sort of inequality measure over that matrix, okay? This, as I say here, has been done quite widely uh, and, and has international, uh, we can make some international comparisons. Now, uh, you could do it in two ways. You could just have that inequality in that matrix, or you could represent that inequality as a share of the total inequality. So this would be the inequality of opportunity ratio. It would be the inequality in the counterfactual matrix, the smooth distribution matrix over the inequality in the original matrix, which in some sense would just give you the share of total inequality that is associated with uh, opportunities. Two remarks before I move on to examples. One, which is a small remark, is that this can be computed non-parametrically, but you can run into problems as you always do with non-parametrics when sample sizes are small, so you can do it also in a parametric way, which basically regress income or earnings on the set of circumstances. And I wouldn't mention this, except that I'm going to ask you to remember this very simple little linear equation here when I come back to, inter to intergenerational mobility and when I show you how intergenerational mobility and this kind of approach are very, very similar. Okay? So this is one way in which you could do it. Um, now, the, the bigger remark is that if we move from the theory, from the little model, the little matrix that I had, to empirics, we have to deal with the fact that in any data set, you're only going to observe some circumstances. You might observe parental education, but it will probably be in years of schooling, and it won't tell you whether your parent went to Harvard or to some other place. Uh, uh, and you may, uh, you know, you may uh, observe parental occupation, that people are farmers or that people are artisans, but you won't know exactly what they do in detail. So we're always observing these circumstances partially and incompletely, which means that some of the inequality in here is actually most likely due to omitted circumstances. And it means that when we calculate the inequality over this matrix, we're getting effectively a lower bound. Uh, we're not getting all of the inequality of opportunity, we're getting some. So let me show you some examples. And the first one is a, a paper of mine, early, early paper with uh, Jeremy Gignou, where we applied this to Latin America. Uh, we had uh, six countries in Latin America, and we had uh, just very basic data, cross-sectional surveys that had some information on parental background. Um, so our circumstances... We had two categories for race and ethnicity, three categories in each country for place of birth, three for father's education, three for mother's education, two for father's occupation. So three cubed is 27, 54, 108, right? So we ended up with 108 types, except for Peru and Colombia, where we were missing father's occupation, 54 types. Note, this is very, very coarse. It's a very coarse partition. Education is just in three categories. Occupation is just in two categories. And nonetheless, the inequality opportunity ratios were for income, okay, B 
between just over a quarter of total inequality and about a third of total inequality. So just with those few circumstances, they could account for up to a third of overall inequality. For consumption, it was even worse. In Guatemala, it could account for uh, over half of the observed inequality in consumption was accounted for by the inequality between these 108 types, which, you know, we at the time thought these were actually quite large numbers, and they show that there is a substantial presence of, of unjust inequalities, of inequalities of opportunity behind the inequality we observe as a lower bound. Now, the, the, these early works were criticized by some people on the basis that the lower bounds may be uninformative in the sense that maybe they're too low, you know, maybe there's much more inequality of opportunity than this. So I now want to take you through a few attempts in what I call the second generation studies to, uh, to improve on this early work that uh, people like uh, Kaki and Peragine did in Italy and uh, Jeremy and I did for Latin America. There's a paper also with Francois Bourguignon for Brazil, which is similar, and a number of other papers for India, for many other places that, that built largely on this method. Um, but a number of years later, responding to this critique that these lower bounds may be uninformatively low, um, people try to improve on this. And, and I'm going to just take a few minutes to go through three ways in which they've done this. The first is by using much better data than we had. So we, we, we had these cross-sectional surveys, right, with few, a few circumstances. Um, these, this team of authors here, uh, uh, John Romer, uh, Andreas Peiko, Paul Hufe, and Martin Unger, uh, used uh, longitudinal surveys, panel surveys, for the U.S. and Britain, uh, the NLSY, the, the Longitudinal Survey of Youth and the British Cohort Study, in which, in addition to the base set of circumstances, the regular things, sex, country of birth, ethnic affiliation, blah, 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 mother's occupation, rural urban, blah, blah. They also had a lot of information about these children, these people, these adults, during their childhood. That was the beauty of these panel data. They had ability test scores for math and reading. They had a behavioral problems index. They had information on how often they played with their parents, the quality and quantity of the time with parents, um, habits of the mother and the father, uh, all kinds of information that arguably, if you allow for people's choices, to, for people not to be responsible for things that happened to them when they were very young, um, and only to become responsible for things after some basic age of consent. So if you treat things in childhood as circumstances, then, you know, you could get, uh, you know, they, could, they had a much finer division into types. And they compare these various sets moving from the basic to the more, uh, to the richer set of circumstances. And unsurprisingly, this is, uh, this is the U.S. data here from the NLSY, Unsurprisingly, they found that the share of total inequality that is accounted for by inequality of opportunity still as a lower bound rises substantially from less than 30% to around 46%. So just by increasing the set of, uh, of circumstances to include more information, which is still incomplete, still partial, but you do get to say that you know, much more of inequality than you thought is actually do uh, accounted for by circumstance. Still this partial observability, still you don't have all the circumstances. So another paper that I like a lot is uh, by Nihus and Paykel. It's actually an earlier paper than that, where they also use panel data, but now instead of using the panel data in order to uh, get information on people's childhoods, they, they do a nice little panel data trick, they say, well, let me estimate the fixed effects and treat fixed effects in this panel regression as an upper bound measure of circumstances. That is to say, um, you know, if you run a regression and you get the fixed effect, the fixed effect captures for each individual um, all of those circumstances, you know, for that individual it captures the effect of their parents, the effect of where they were born, of their race, of their gender, all of that stuff. And perhaps it has some time invariant element of effort or responsibility too, in which case this is an upper bound rather than a lower bound. Okay. And they 
used the PSID, the Panel Study of Income Dynamics for the U.S., and the Socioeconomic Panel, the GSUP for Germany. And they did this for annual incomes and for permanent incomes. They calculated the lower bounds the same way as uh, we had in the past, but they also had these upper bounds. And you see some very long ranges here, but you see some upper bounds of inequality of opportunity now above 60 to almost 70% uh, in the U.S. for permanent incomes uh, and above 40% uh, in, in, in Germany for annual incomes. So for permanent incomes, where you iron out variation from year to year, you get upper bounds of inequality of opportunity that could be very, very high indeed. So my last uh, uh, study uh, here that I want to talk about is um, is, uh, uh, is this one where Brunori, uh, Hufe, and, and Mahler, Paolo Brunori, Paul Hufe, and Daniel Mahler, use machine learning to let the data choose for you the types because you're getting more and more types over here, right? And sometimes, you know, you can run into statistical problems, basically, for those who care about this sort of thing, akin to overfitting. You know, you just have two few people in each type, you're estimating that imprecisely. So these guys wanted to let the data tell you uh, how, how, how to do the types, and they use these conditional inference trees to sort of partition the sample, and, and the data tells you how to partition and where to stop partitioning, provided you choose some basic parameters. I don't have time to get into the detail, but it generates things like this. Here's an opportunity three for South Africa, okay? This is some work that we're still doing with uh, Paolo and, uh, and Vito Peragine, Paolo Brunori and Vito Peragine. Uh, this is South Africa in 2008. The sample had uh, 7,300 people, but the circumstances we observed would allow you to have 12,000 types. So clearly that can't work, right? With the data set that you, the data, the sample size you have, you couldn't estimate this. So we use this technique. Of uh, that I've just described, and it tells you that the data that the that the sample should be split first, you know, into African and color on the one hand, and Asian, Indian, white in the other, uh, and then by father's education, and then in this case here by father's occupation, and for this set here again by ethnicity once more, and you end up with these five types, which are big; they represent large proportions of the of the population, you can plot their, their uh, cumulative distribution functions. These are just like those for Guatemala and, and, and those other Latin American countries I had. There I had only the mother's education. Here, these types are selected so as to sort of maximize their statistical independence from each other, if you like. And you have here the poorest type, which is the African and colored people in South Africa whose fathers had very little education. And here the richest, way to the right, which is all of the whites and Asians and Indians together. Uh, and you could tell lots more stories about what's happening in between if you had the time that I don't. Okay. So these, these are our uh, measurements, uh, things. Now, in the last four or five minutes, if I have that, yeah, Minush is saying I have five minutes. In the last five minutes, let me tell you very briefly a few uh, extensions. The first is to draw attention to the similarities and differences between this inequality of opportunity approach and intergenerational mobility. The literature on intergenerational mobility is much better known amongst economists than the literature on inequality of opportunity. Think of all the work that Raj Chetty has been doing. Uh, that, that's this kind of stuff here. Now, Chetty and co-authors have many ways of measuring in a, uh, intergenerational mobility, but the workhorse of that literature has long been this regression which is a Galtonian regression of the children's, the income of the children when adults on the income of the parents, right? And that beta there is the intergenerational elasticity. And it's a measure of the inverse of mobility, of persistence. Or the R squared, the share of variation in children's income that is explained by the parents' income. Because of course, in some circumstances, this is just the square of this. Uh, under, under some assumptions about the variances of the margins. Uh, you know, it's the same. This, this is the measure. What is it, this measure of, of intergenerational mobility? It's the share of this outcome in the young generation explained by parental. But what was our measure of in, inequality of opportunity? It was the share of inequality 
explained by all these circumstances. Exactly the same thing, except this is a variance and this is the tile index, but it's the share of, of, of inequality in the current generation explained by things in the past. So you see that they're very isomorphic. That's the first thing I'd like you to know. But the difference is that this literature here includes more circumstances than just parental, parental thinking. And we're very explicit in our approach of this, that, that, that these are not causal impacts from any individual circumstances because you have omitted variables, right? So it's the lower bound story that I told you before. But you see that these two are related and yet a little bit different. If you only use parental income, you, you tend to get lower numbers uh, than, than if you use all of the, the bands. And indeed, these two things then, intergenerational mobility for earnings and inequality of opportunity are quite correlated in the cross-section of countries uh, from this database that we created with the University of Bari and uh, my group when I was at the World Bank and which will now hopefully be also at the III. Um, so, 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 you know, these, these two clearly are correlated um, in equality of opportunity and intergenerational earnings mobility, which means we can show this little diagram, which is a sort of cool, cool diagram. I think many of you will remember a version of this when you have intergenerational mobility here. It was known as the Great Gatsby Curve, right? it was originally drawn by Miles Korak. Uh, of the University of Ottawa and Alan Kruger and his team. I actually know the full story of how it was named, but uh, I can leave that for uh, questions. Uh, called it a Great Gatsby Curve. This is an association between uh, uh, income inequality and, in Miles' case, inequality of opportunity. In our case, uh, sorry, intergenerational mobility. Here I've drawn it for this measure of inequality of opportunity that I was showing you before. And you can see, you know, Iceland and Denmark and Norway and Finland over here. You can see Britain kind of here, the U.S. in the middle, and then Brazil and Guatemala and South Africa. over here. Now, you know, because of time limitations, I may skip some of the things later, but I do want to end on this point, which is an, a, key, a key point that I want to make. The fact that you have this relationship, right, means that even if your equalizando, even if the thing that you're trying to eliminate is not income inequality, it's inequality in opportunities, it seems like you can't do one without the other very much, right? The ones that have very low inequality of opportunity also have very low income inequality. Now, this makes eminent sense because today's opportunities will shape, you know, the opportunities we have for children today will shape their outcomes tomorrow. And their outcomes tomorrow will shape their children's opportunities. So, of course, there is a mutually reinforcing circle between these two, which explain this upward relationship, right? So inequality of outcomes, incomes, wealth, whatever, and inequality of opportunities are not competing concepts. They're really two sides of the same coin. Um, I had some more stuff on, on how this relates to growth and on some very cool applications to algorithmic design. Uh, uh, for, for online uh, search tools. Um, but I'll leave those if anybody has uh, questions about them, perhaps we can talk about them. I'll just conclude with this slide. Um, and that is that I hope to have shown you that both intrinsically, both looking at it from an ethical and, and normative perspective, uh, but also instrumentally, and this is some of the discussion on growth that I didn't have time for, uh, inequality of opportunity is the sort of active ingredient, the core uh, ingredient of inequality. Can it be measured? It can be measured rigorously, but not yet precisely. Because of the partial observability of circumstances, we have these lower and upper bounds, and we are trying to get, you know, uh, an area, an interval within which uh, true inequality of opportunity uh, 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 resides. Um, it places considerable demands on data. It requires us to make normative judgments about what counts as a circumstance and what doesn't. There's a huge range across countries. Some very egalitarian countries have very low relative measures of inequality of opportunity. Some others in, have very high upper bounds. Okay. This last point that I made, I think, is, is an important one, which is that it is distinct from but highly correlated with income inequality because they are two sides of the same coin, okay? So I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for listening and thank you, Minush. 
Thank you very much, Chico. I think you've raised so many issues, and of course, the questions are pouring in. So let me um, let me start with uh, a couple of questions uh, around uh, meritocracy. Uh, from Rafael Carenzo, who's an LSE student, how does this particular definition of inequality of opportunity relate to the concept of meritocracy? And we also have a question from Paul Lee around. Uh, luck and luck being one of the possible elements of circumstances. Has there been any attempt to disaggregate luck from other circumstances as this is an element which may play a role in unfairness and luck often fools the successful into believing they live in meritocracy. And of course, Michael Sandel's recent book very much focuses on this illusion of meritocracy. Talk a little bit about, about that set of issues if you could. Sure, those are two great questions. Um, first of all, you know, there is, there is a distinction between equality of opportunity and, and meritocracy, which is quite fundamental. And that is that um, in meritocracy, you will assign rewards or offices or jobs or whatever on the basis of some absolute measure of how well individuals do. In equality of opportunity, you condition on circumstances. What does that mean? That means that somebody who's, you know, I used to teach this in Paris, and I used to say somebody whose parents emig immigrated from North Africa and live in the banlieues uh, and, you know, who went to a school uh, with those peers and so on. The fact that that person, that person may um, present for a job interview or have some result in a test, which is lower than somebody else with a different background, but which would be ranked more highly in equality of opportunity terms and not in meritocracy, because you are compensating. You must compensate for those differences. So the two are actually quite different. People think that um, equality of opportunity is like meritocracy because there is this allowance for for some inequality due to effort or responsibility. But the key difference is that it has to control for, it has to compensate for differences in circumstances. That's uh, one part. Then the question on luck, there have been people who, who addressed luck, uh, mostly conceptually. There's a, a, a paper by uh, Alain Trenois uh, and uh, some other uh, uh, economists, also I think French economists on, on this, on luck and inequality of opportunity. Um, I think, you know, it's quite interesting. W one problem with it is that luck, by definition, is quite hard to observe and separate <laughs> from other things you don't observe. I presume it's the residual. It's what you can't explain by effort and circumstances. Well, yes, except that then it's conflated with other things you don't observe, right? So, so it's luck, but it's also, as I was saying, these unobserved circumstances that you don't have in your data. And, and so that's why, in the end, in our approach, we haven't really tried to separate it out. And we just say, look, luck is yet another reason why all these numbers you're looking at are too low. They're, they're lower bound numbers. Okay. Let me turn to the issues around wealth uh, from Derek Lowe. In the United States, the millennial generation only owns 3% of net wealth. The oldest members of this generation are 39, nearly middle-aged. How can those in their 30s and late 20s work to close this wealth gap in the short term? And I guess I have to ask you the obvious question because it's very topical. Do you think there's any role for wealth taxes in that context? Yes. Well, so one, one thing uh, I didn't have time uh, to get into here is what do we do about it, right? So this was largely a talk about concepts and measurement, but um, what would one do uh, to, to fight inequality of opportunity? And I think the point I'd like to make is that, you know, the, the story as I was telling you of these children, right, with the different brain sizes, with the, with, the, with the different vocabulary recognitions and going to these different schools and so on, it just shows you that left to itself, the, 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 market, the market economy and the societies that we have will reproduce inequality enormously, even, as I said then, without mentioning inheritance and physical wealth, right? Now, of course, inheritance and physical wealth are just further uh, uh, constructs in that, in that direction. So you do need massive public action and public intervention 
to sort of try to level the playing field. Um, and I think wealth taxes, whether in addressing the gap in America, which the question referred to, or your question about the discussions currently ongoing in the UK, including by, uh, by our own colleague Andy Summers and, 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 uh, and Mike Savage and others, uh, those, uh, you know, those would be very much part of the toolkit that we need to sort of reverse that. And not only, this is important just to say, not only to bring the top down, um, which is, you know, often in today's discussions of inequality, there is this kind of obsession with the mega rich. I actually care mostly about the kid with the three-year-old brain uh, who, is, who is deprived and about those poor, poor people in Ecuador. And what we need to do is we need to tax those rich guys and use the taxes to provide quality health and education services and training and perhaps even endowments um, for the poor and, and underprivileged. So, you know, you, you use that taxation for that to try and level the playing field that otherwise is incredibly uneven. Okay, another question from Pablo Molinedo, who's an, another LSE student. For a given type, as we increase effort, will it always translate to higher income? How about the impact of corruption, nepotism, and other factors? Right. So I guess controlling for circumstances. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So corruption and nepotism and things like that would... I think would show up as differences between types, right? Because for example, um, yeah, so, so anything, so, so, you know, uh, the children of richer parents and parents who own businesses and are captains of industry are likely to benefit uh, from nepotism and connections and so on and so forth to a much greater extent than others. And that is, and that is, um, and that is between types. Now, the, the person asking the question asks specifically, what if there are differences between people in the same type like that, right? The answer, the answer is a, a little bit pedantic, but, but bear with me. I'll make it less pedantic. The, the answer is, so the, by definition, the only thing that should differ within a type is effort. So if it isn't effort, that is to say, if within what you thought was a type, one person gets everything handed over by their parents or gets a corrupt deal in some way, then that's no longer the same type. He's in a different type because that's a circumstance. That's something that he does, you know, that happened in unrelated to his effort. Now, you may say, well, empirically, that doesn't happen. Again, empirically, if we don't observe those things, we are exaggerating inequality due to effort which is another reason why these are all lower bounds and why, in fact, inequality of opportunity is probably even higher than we observe. Right. So let me ask you a couple of questions around measurement issues and how we could put this into practice. Uh, Eve Nagel from uh, the Robert Bosch Stiftung asks, how, how common are these measures of inequality of opportunity and how could they be used on a larger scale as part of national statistics and how could we make this possible? And Francisca Mager from Oxfam also asked, what are some terms you'd like to include in your measures of inequality of opportunity if you could operationalize them better? How would you make these measures even more effective? Okay. So, I mean, I will say that measures have been, these measures have been used in a number of uh, reports by international organizations, uh, I remember, you know, the World Bank where I was, but also I remember the Asian Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. There was a time when uh, people were quite interested in these and, and, and these measures were uh, used, uh, were used often. I think the, the key challenge really is this challenge that the lower bound may be too low. Uh, and so what would make these measures even better is if for more countries, we had the kind of panel data that was used in the examples I gave, where we observe either a lot more information about people's childhoods. So these, you know, like, for example, some of you may know the Young Lives Project that was initially run out of Oxford, where in four developing countries, they tried to do something analogous to the, uh, the, 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 the British cohort study or, or the GSOP where you had actually information on children from very young age and then later on. 
those kinds of data sets would allow us to get a much better handle on what true inequality of opportunity is like. Now, I think that may have answered the first question. I'm not sure it does answer the second. I don't know if you want to come back to that or... I think I think you got the spirit out. I'm going to use the last couple of minutes to ask you a question about the LSE uh, now that you've come back to your, uh, your intellectual home. Uh, at the LSE, we do something called contextual admissions, which means that we look at about 24 variables, what you would call circumstances, uh, of a student when they apply. And those play into our decision to admit them. So as you said, a student who went to a very poor quality school in a tough neighborhood and was on free school meals would stand a better chance of getting into the LSE than somebody who got the equivalent grades but went to a very uh, elite private school, for example. Uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts about that system that we apply or more widely how universities can use your approach to think more about how to be better engines of social mobility. Yeah, that's another great question. Um, I think the debates about university admissions and affirmative action of various kinds, which this contextual admission you may not call it affirmative action, but effectively it's very analogous to that, I suppose, um, where you are making a deliberate effort to be inclusive of, uh, of excluded groups and underprivileged groups. The arguments against it are typically meritocratic arguments, mm. are typically people saying, well, but then that means that X, Y, Z, you know, who's this nice person who unfortunately was born white and went to a good school, can't get into your great university. Mm. Well, it's another example of how inequality of opportunity or the approach to social justice based on inequality of opportunity is in some sense considerably different from and perhaps more radical than a meritocratic approach. It does say, look, we, are, we ought to compensate for those things and, and make admissions comparable. I will just say one more little thing. Again, I didn't have time to get into this here, but um, there is a whole side of this literature thinking conceptually about what's the objective. I mean, equality is a difficult objective because you have the leveling down objection. You could have equality at zero, right? So it's, it's about promoting the biggest set of opportunities for the person with the least, a sort of Rawlsian Maximin thing, okay? Mm -hmm. I mention this because that means that in the design of your admissions policy, you must ensure that the people who you are uh, compensating for and allowing in have a chance to succeed. Right. So a valid argument against some of these kinds of, 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 of policies is not because they are stealing the place from someone who's more favored, but because if you are then setting the person up for failure, given their background, then that's obviously not what you want to do. And I'm sure that you guys have thought about it, but I just wanted to relate it to the literature. Great, thank you. And I noticed Alpa Shah asked a similar question that I just asked, so I think we've covered that one. Uh, and maybe final question from Ignacio Campomanes from the Navarra Center for International Development. I'd, I'd love to hear about the link between op, in, uh, about inequality of opportunities and economic growth and how it relates to the broad literature of inequality growth relationships, uh, citing Galarzera, Tabellini, and others. Yeah, that is a, a thank you for that question. I didn't it's point to, to end I, I could have because it was this, one of the slides I had to skip. So mm -hmm. since we have about one minute, it's just to say, you know, that literature that you mentioned, there's a long literature on inequality and growth, is largely inconclusive. Uh, because there were lots, you know, you change the data sets, you change from cross-sectional to panel, you change the, the instrument, you change this, you change that. You could get papers that tell you that inequality was good for growth, that inequality was bad for growth, that it was inequality in the bottom that mattered, that it was only in poor countries, all kinds of different papers that you can think of. Uh, there is this paper by these two Spanish economists, Marrero and Rodriguez, in the JDE, which I think is a great paper, because I had the slide on it, which took the relationship between inequality and growth among U.S. states over three census periods in the U.S. And inequality within a state was weakly associated, uh, positively associated with growth, but not significant. 
Now, then you separate that inequality into the two parts, the opportunity one and the residual, which you may associate with effort, but we know is really a residual. Lo and behold, the effort bit was positive and significant, and the opportunity bit was negative and significant, which is a confirmation for what I had called earlier the cholesterol hypothesis. The bad kind of inequality, the one that really lowers economic growth and efficiency, is the inequality of opportunity part. Why? Because it implies a huge waste of, of human potential, of talent, right? And right. so there is some evidence of that. Absolutely, absolutely. I think we have to stop there, but Chico, thank you so much for uh, really taking us to the frontier of this emerging and interesting field of inequality of opportunity uh, and for making us think about inequality in new and different ways. And uh, welcome officially to the LSE. We're, we're very happy to have you here. And we look forward to other research and other ideas and other lectures, which take these issues even further. And thank you all to the audience for joining us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the event and please join us for more. Good night, everyone. Thank you, Minush.